The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Many of you were here last week. You're brave souls. I said I was talking about grammar. So I am delighted to have you here. If this is your first time, we are in the process of walking through one chapter per week through my book, How to Understand and Apply the Old Testament. And it's written on a choose-your-own-adventure path. There's three different tiers. And most of what we're doing is looking at just the the day traveler, not the... uh, high-end hiker, or the rock climber. We are uh, looking at the, the day traveler, and the, the goal is indeed that God would help us read for depth and not just distance. We need to be able to read for distance. There's such a joy. My, my wife has a testimony of one summer serving as a park ranger, which is where I met her. She looked great and green and tan. <laughs> And, um, but that summer she was sitting in a booth inviting people in and she got to read a lot. She read through the entire Old Testament at least, if not, which was it? The whole Bible or the, just the old, the whole Bible in one summer. And, uh, being able to have that type of overview is, is a remarkable journey to be able to see God's speaking, God's working from the beginning all the way to the end. And then there is great benefit when we can slow down. And what we're going to look at today is slowing down to consider small details about the relationship of words and the relationship of clauses. So to that end, let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your book. It's a book. You gave it to us in a way that we could understand communicating through words and through clauses, through paragraphs, units of thought that work together to communicate the encounter that you would want us to have with you. So I pray that we wouldn't take lightly the fact that there are letters and sounds prepositions, and participles. Meet us today as we look at something a little bit technical. May it serve us, and may it spark us to want to read slower at times. Through Jesus, I pray, who alone supplies. Amen. Clause, grammar, and text grammar. We are in the fifth chapter. We've moved now into the second part of this five-part progression. Text, observation, context, meaning application. So we're asking, how is this passage communicated? And one of the ways that it comes to us, the one of the ways that God communicates it is through sounds. Scratches on a paper that are letters that are symbols communicating to those that know them, creating words. Words in specific arrangements with specific relationships that create clauses. Clauses intentionally placed with connectors or lack of connection in order to communicate specific truths and To build arguments. Clause and text grammar. So, what we're talking about here is assessing the makeup and relationship of words, phrases, clauses. That's usually where most people stop with grammar. Just at the sentence level. But I'm also wanting us to rise one level up to this concept of text grammar. 
That there's actually, just like there's independent slots into which we fit certain parts of speech at a clause level, that texts are shaped together with intentionality and structure and rules. So we're going to look at four different elements today. Number one, many of you coming in today may have said this, it's all Hebrew to me. But what I want to say is that there is a pleasing pain. If you can just if you can just recognize that God's the one who chose to give us his word in a book. And all of a sudden, pausing, slowing down to consider, okay, there's a pronoun here. What is it referring to? There's a conjunction here. Therefore. Now, What's the therefore, therefore? And asking yourself and wrestling and, and considering it. There's a, there's a reason, there's a ground clause given, a because. Saying, okay, it's providing the reason. Because this is true, therefore this is true. And asking yourself, why, God? Why did you give it to us this way? It can serve us. A pleasing pain considering prepositional phrases and participles and attempting to put together the author's flow of thought. Hebrew for the rest of us. It was written by a friend of mine, Lee Fields. I think it's the best book out there for those that don't want to let your Bible study stick to only books made of words of one syllable. But you want to let it rise up one level. You, you can't give your life to learn Hebrew. But you want to take it up to the next level where all of a sudden you can begin to know a little bit more of how Hebrew works. You can begin to read some commentaries that actually engage some of the issues of the Hebrew text. And you can learn how to do a word study without having to be bound to an ESV exhaustive concordance. Because the same word for eat might actually be representing a number of different Hebrew words. And what you want to be able to do is know how to use the tool that can help you get to the list of Hebrew words, even though you only know English. And there's concordances that are made that way. And where everything is driven by numbers. And where you can track down the right kind of word and do the right kind of word study. Or where you can learn how to use an interlinear, an interlinear linear Bible. And consider conjunctions a little bit more intentionally. And how parts relate to holes. Hebrew for the rest of us. Here's the structure. Consonants in the history of Hebrew. Vowels and how we got the Old Testament. Roots, clauses, and function words. Nominals. That's things like prepositions all the way to uh, sorry, adjectives and nouns, mostly. Verbals. A method to our madness. Hebrew word studies. Electronic resources. Studying Hebrew prose and studying Hebrew poetry. All without knowing Hebrew. So, it's a helpful book. Why grammar? Well, let's consider an example. In 1993, I put a ring on my fiancé's finger and left for four and a half months. I was a charmer. Yes, I was a charmer. So, I headed off to study in Israel for a semester. And... Consciously, in my mind, I had 1 Samuel 13, 14 there. The Lord sought for himself a man after his heart. And the prayer, as I went into that semester, was, Oh God, let me increasingly become a man after your heart. What was I praying? Now, I think when I was praying that, I was, God, let, my, let, let me be one who wants to pursue 
your heart increasingly. Or maybe I was praying, may my desires, my will be more aligned with your desires and your will. But in praying that way, I was assuming something about the text regarding what a prepositional phrase actually modifies. Let's step back and consider a very familiar verse. Up here on the screen, New American Standard, the Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. So up here we've got an interlinear of the Hebrew, Bekesh Yahweh lo ish kilvavo, sought, we always, Hebrew reads right to left, sought Yahweh for himself, prepositional phrase, a man according to or after or like his heart. So this is the verb. Most clauses in Hebrew have the verbs up front in contrast to English. Sought, then we got the subject, Yahweh. Then we have a modifier, the direct object, and a modifier again. Small modifiers usually will go right after the subject. So this is very common word order. Subject, sorry, verb, subject, direct object, modifier, unless it's really tiny and then it'll get thrown up front. This is exactly the kind of Hebrew word order that we would expect. And I was, in taking this prepositional phrase, the Lord sought a man after his heart, I was assuming that after his heart was telling me something about the man. Now, man is a noun, so if it has a modifier, that modifier would be considered an adjectival modifier. Adjectives modify nouns, adverbs modify verbs. So I was assuming that after his heart was telling me something about a man. Now, the Hebrew preposition, it's that little C right here. The Hebrew preposition kaf never means to pursue, like the cop was pursuing the robber. It can never mean that in Hebrew. But after, English preposition after, can mean that in English. The cop went after the robber. But we never see the preposition cop functioning that way. Instead, we always see it expressing a comparison like or expressing the standard or norm by which an activity happens. So, I begin to ask myself, okay, here's a prepositional phrase. Even in English, most prepositional phrases actually modify verbs rather than nouns. But we do have a number of examples where preposition will modify the noun. So let's consider two possibilities of meaning if this preposition is actually modifying man. So this is adjectival view one. Over here, sought Yahweh a man. That's the main clause. The Lord sought a man. And then there's two modifiers unpacking it. The first one unquestionably modifies the verb. He sought for himself a man. Why did he seek it? He sought for himself, for his own benefit. But then we come to like or according to his heart, and we, we end up with a question. All commentators agree that his heart refused, refers to the Lord's heart, not to the man's heart. So this is Saul being replaced by one that we'll find out is named David. Saul is being rejected, and God says, Samuel says to Saul, the Lord has sought for himself a man according to his own heart. And 
So if it's a man, if the man is somehow according to God's heart, there's two possibilities for reading this. If heart refers to God's character and loyalty, then what it would mean is is there's a missing word, and that's totally fine. A man whose character, so heart is always internal, it deals with desire and will or possibly character. So if his heart refers to God's character or loyalty, then what it would mean is that the clause, the Lord sought a man whose character or loyalty was like God's character or loyalty. A man who's a man after God's loyalty. A man according to God's character. That is, the man somehow associated with it, connected with it, like it. A man like God's character. But there's a second possibility, and that is... Oh, sorry, here's, here's examples of translations that follow that view. The Bible in basic English... The Lord searching for a man who is pleasing to him in every way. What does it mean that the Lord sought for himself a man after his heart? He's searching for someone pleasing to him. The man is pleasing to the Lord. The Lord has sought out for himself a man who's loyal to him. The Lord has found a man loyal. The Lord will search for a man following the Lord's own heart. That's intriguing because it's actually... It it treats it as if it's more like pursuit, which I don't see any examples in the Old Testament like that. But second adjectival view, if if heart doesn't mean character or loyalty, but actually will or desire, which is another very fair possibility, then it would mean this. The Lord sought for himself a man who was according to his own choosing. A man in accordance with his will. So the man himself aligns with the desire of God in picking the king that he did. But still adjectival. He's a man according to God's choice. And that actually says something different. It doesn't tell us anything about the man other than that he's the one that God picked. Now, the third option is that we read this not as an adjective, an adjectival prepositional phrase, but as an adverbial prepositional phrase telling us something about how God sought the man. Sorry, I jumped ahead again. Here's option two in two different translations. The message, God is out looking for your replacement right now. This time, he'll do the choosing. That's the message. And the Lord will search for a man of his own choosing. A man of his own choosing. But the adverbial possibility. And it actually, the ultimate result is very similar to the second adjectival view, but it's more explicit. Because what we're doing now is we're taking the prepositional phrase, we're not saying it modifies man, we're saying that it actually modifies the verb. How did God seek? First of all, the first question is, why did God seek? He sought for himself. How did God seek? He sought according to his own will. Translation. If heart serves as the standard or norm by which the Lord sought a new king then it would be like this. The Lord sought for himself, according to his own will, a man. According to his own image of royalty, like what we see in Deuteronomy chapter 17. When you enter into the land, you shall pick the man of my choice, It says in Deuteronomy 17, 14. He can't be one who increases women. He can't increase war horses. He can't increase wealth. 
But this he must do. He must copy for himself in a book, in the very presence of the Levitical priests, this Torah, this law. And he can't just have his own copy. He has to actually read it every day. And as he reads from this book, fear of me will be generated so that he will not lift his heart up over his countrymen. But he will obey my voice and his kingdom will last. That's God's image of kingship. And if this is referring to that, God sought, according to his own will, according to his own vision of kingship, a man. Then the ultimate result does probably come close to what you actually thought this verse meant. But the phrase itself doesn't tell us specifically about anything, anything about the man. It would be telling us about how God saw it, but then it raises the question, well, why would God choose this man over a different one? That David actually aligned closer to God's vision of kingship than Saul did. And God saw it according to his own vision of kingship, David, as opposed to anyone else. Adrian? Which, Deuteron- which Daniel chapter 2 says God raises up kings and he lowers them. So, so that's very true. The question would be, in the context of 1 Samuel, so, so in all of kingship, you'll remember in 1 Samuel chapter 8, when the people ask for a king to judge them like the nations... That's an allusion back to Deuteronomy 17 where God says, when you enter into the land and you decide to set up a king over you like the nations. And so it invites us then to read the rest of the story in light of Deuteronomy 17. So, yes, it could just generally mean, the wording could generally mean, well, God could choose anybody. But for his own reason. But within the context... It seems to me very possible that when it says he chose according to his own, he sought according to his own choosing, according to his own will, a man, that it's a specific allusion back to Deuteronomy 17, which specifies the man has to be of God's choice. So it's... It's a contextual understanding that sets us up for, under, for reading a text like 1 Samuel 17. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God, he looks at the heart. So, within the context of the book, I think either the adjectival reading or the adverbial reading can work. But I was assuming something when I went to Israel about what the verse was actually saying. And it was guiding my prayer life. And yet I hadn't even paused to consider that the prepositional phrase could be modifying the verb instead of the noun. So what is grammar? Steve. Yep. It's possible, but it's not required. So you can look in my book and find my answer to that in a specific footnote, which will also send you to an article if you want to read that. But, the, <laughs> but what, what he's doing in Acts 13, he's changed sought. The Lord has sought a man. He's changed it to found because now Paul is 
a thousand years after David, looking back. So sought has been changed to found. And then he adds who the man is, David the son of Jesse. And then he just leaves the word order exactly as it falls in the rest of the Septuagint. And so it's, it's possible, and I've confirmed this with Greek guys. I'm just an Old Testament guy, right? Um, I've confirmed it with Greek guys that there's, there's nothing in Acts 13 that requires an adjectival reading of that prepositional phrase. Even though it fits, it's not required. And the fact that it's quoting the Old Testament text, it pushes us back to the Old Testament text to consider which makes more sense. And within the context, I identify um, how God's appointment of David as king in 2 Samuel is also said to have been according to his heart. And in that context, it's very clearly adverbial. But there's not... My point here is simply not to convince you. We'll talk more about this verse in, in weeks to come um, when we look at historical context. But my point right now is simply to say it was only slowing down that years after I was praying that I would be a man after God's heart, years after I was praying that, um, that a, sl- a slower read forced me to recognize, huh, there might be more possibilities here and I might be misinterpreting the text. Oh, and the Spirit... It's not a wrong thing to pray that my heart would be aligned with God's heart. It's just, is that what the phrase meant in this context? So the Spirit was using it, and in His mercy, He was maturing me and my girl at the same time. So what's grammar? It's this whole system and structure that language uses for communicating effectively. And... If you depart from right grammar too much, the communication will break down and it'll be nonsensical. So all of you, even though you might, even the thought of grammar might be giving you, there's hives. Some of you are scratching, I can see. Um, you, You might feel like you're breaking out a little bit. All of you use grammar every day. And if you attempt to communicate and somebody says, I don't understand, it might be because your grammar is breaking down. So there's four different spheres of grammar. And these are going to be, maybe you may have heard these words like when you were in high school, it might be that far back, or you may, may not have even heard of them before. Orthography. What we're talking about here is the study of the alphabet, study of scripts, the shape of letters, and how they combine to form sounds. Phonology, the study of a language's system of sounds or phonemes. Morphology, the study of morphs. That is, the smallest parts of words that combine to create full, full words. And then syntax. Microsyntax is the study of how various words within a construction relate one to another, and that's where you get parts of speech like subjects and predicates and direct objects and prepositional phrases. But then, macrosyntax relates to larger text structures. So we communicate by texts. I could say, run! That could be a text right there. But even within that, because run doesn't have an explicit subject, I need a greater context in order to know who's supposed to run. Why are they telling me to run? Key questions that I have in mind when I'm approaching a text to read for depth. Could any clause or group of clauses be understood differently if the grammar were construed differently? And you can do this even with English. When you compare one translation up to, up to another and you say, I think these are actually saying two different things. They're, they're not just using different words to communicate the same reality. They're actually modifying in different ways. 
Have I identified the antecedent referent of every pronoun and the subject of every verb? An antecedent is, what does this small representing word point to in the context? Deroshi came into the room, he walked up on the stage, he began to talk. He walked up on the stage and he began to talk are two clauses that by their nature stand alone and yet they demand a context to actually have full meaning because you don't know who the he is unless you relate it back to Jason. Do I understand the function of every subordinate conjunction? Because, since, so that, therefore. Do I know how every clause relates to its context? How every clause relates to the whole? Have I grasped the role of every discourse marker? And it came about that. That's a discourse marker in English. Once upon a time. Now, hear me. That now is building transition, draw, making an inference. These little markers in the discourse that are like signposts telling us, did you see me? I'm giving you a signal which way to turn. Clauses and sentences. Yeah. How would you respond to contemporary academic memes that suggest that grammar is the oppressive expression of an allegedly superior culture? How would I respond to the academic meme? That says grammar is the expression of a a superior culture. I would say that the person who created the meme is himself not part of that culture. <clears throat> now let me let me speak more clearly. <laughs> Every language on the planet is driven by grammar. Even those that And every dialect within a language has is driven by its own grammar and even if it's not written down that there are communicative rules that govern actually all languages on the planet, which is why linguists don't necessarily even to need to know a specific language super well. If they can put it into a language grouping, they can understand certain things about how it's working. And so it's true that Moses never gave me his grammar. I, I never got to learn it from him or what they taught him at um, Egyptian Technological Institute, right? Uh, so, <laughs> good old ETI, that's right. So, so, what we're stuck with, without grammar having been passed on, we have to take the text that they have and look for the patterns, propose rules that appear to be guiding their structures constraints that are guiding them in the way that they're communicating and then create a grammar that we can teach to others and the level of that grammar's effectiveness is dependent on how much when you give it a test run people are able to actually understand what it's saying and grammar is always changing whether it's spelling dealing with morphology or sounds, phonology, or even syntax. There was a day when singular, when singular, um, uh, how would I word it? All of a sudden, we're in a day when 
the third common plural pronoun there can actually represent singular groups. But it wasn't like that when I was growing up. And so English grammar is changing. And the Chicago Manual of Style 17th edition actually says that's okay. But the 15th, I don't believe, did. And so being aware, that, that's one of the reasons why I support the updating of translations. Because languages do change. And the goal is that the present era would be able to have the Word of God in their tongue, in their heart language. And English has been altered substantially. Bill? There was a day when text was not a verb. So, yeah, the question is, does it have something to do with the image of God? The fact that God is a communicator and that God created the system within which language works, and and it may not even be part of creation, that it's just part of God's ontology ever in eternity, that the being of God was a communicating God such that the Trinity members could delight in one another, correspond to one another, and to do so demands communication, language. It's what? That language is associated with the ability to discern the order that he brought out of chaos, yes. So, that, that meme, I would just say, I understand they're probably talking about just the technicalities of grammar, that that's uh, an elite group that, that remembers those things. And yet, the reality is, the most common man or woman is bound by the constraints of the language in which they are growing up. And if they ch- seek to get out of it, they will struggle immensely because no one will grasp. So a clause, this basic building block of all text analysis, a grammatical construction that's made up of a subject and and its predicate. So he prayed, or John prayed. John is the subject, prayed is the predicate. A predicate is that part of the clause that refers to the state process or action associated with the subject. The state, state of being verb, am, is, are, was, were, be, being, or been. Action, he threw, he vomited, he spoke, he screamed. The state, the process, the action associated with the subject. So a clause, this is my first process step when I'm trying to read the Bible for depth. I actually break my text into clauses. So what is a clause? At its very essence, the clause begins with an, or, or not, with an optional connector. We call them conjunctions. Then it has a mandatory nucleus, the subject and its predicate, and then any number of modifiers. The modifier could be a word, like a phrase. It could be a, sorry, a word like an adverb, a phrase like a prepositional phrase, or a whole clause like a relative clause. So take this example. You've got, here's the clause, plus or minus connector, plus the nucleus. That's what's necessary to make a clause, a complete thought. And then plus or minus a modifier. And David killed Goliath with a stone. This clause happens to have a conjunction. David killed Goliath is the nucleus. You have the subject and its predicate, including the verb and its object. And then with a stone, you don't need that to make sense. David killed Goliath is enough. And David killed Goliath is additional. And David killed Goliath with a stone. That's going beyond what is necessary. So all you need for the clause is right here. And then the type of conjunction you put on the front can determine whether that clause is subordinate or coordinate, independent, dependent. So yesterday, David slew Goliath. 
Yesterday is an adverb telling me when he slew. He did it yesterday, a single word operating as a modifier. David slew Goliath in the afternoon. This too is a temporal modifier, but now it's a full prepositional phrase telling me more when he slew. He slew in the afternoon. David, who is but a youth, slew Goliath. Who is? That's a subject and a predicate. It's its own clause. But it's functioning as a relative clause within a greater clause. It's modifying David. It's serving, it's functioning adjectivally, expanding more of our information on David. But all that you need for the clause is David slew Goliath. This is extra. So a clause is a grammatical construction made up of a subject and a predicate. A phrase is a group of words that fills a single slot in a clause. You could have a a noun phrase functioning as the subject. You could have a verb phrase standing as the predicate. You could have a prepositional phrase. A phrase is not a clause. It can't stand on its own. A subordinate clause, a clause that serves as a modifier and is embedded in a higher level clause, as in who is but a youth. That's subordinate. And so a main clause is one that is not grammatically subordinate to a higher level one. David slew Goliath is the main clause. So what's a sentence? A sentence is a main clause with all of its subordinate clauses. So let's give it a test run. What I'm going to do is open up Bible Arc, which is my go-to Bible program, and I want us to break this into clauses. All right? So you guys take a stab at it. Be brave. It's okay if you don't get it right. Let's break it into clauses. Where's the first clause end? Pardon? Turn? On 7-1. After land? So where you are entering to possess, that's actually a phrase. You can't, if you drop off where and just have you are entering, that that it can't stand on its own. You are entering. Um, well, actually, you could. I've got to, it's so hard for me to do this in English. Um <laughs> So, the, but, no, 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 I'm, I'm thinking through other things. So this is fine. We can do it this way. So let's, let's do this. So that's fine. Where you're entering to possess, then what? It, there's a comma that helps us and clears away. Now, you have to understand that the Hebrew is actually, I mean, that the English is actually assuming a bunch of subjects here. So it's building a compound when, when unit, but there's an understood subject with all these. So when the Lord and when He, that's the idea, when He clears. Away many nations before you, that is the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, Bud Lights, Mosquito Bites, seven nations greater and stronger than you, and when, so this when, the Lord, this and when he, that could have been right here as well, and when the Lord delivers them before you, then what? Go ahead. What about right here? 
Okay? Then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them. And show no, mer- no, show no favor to them. Don't intermarry with them. Don't give your daughters to their sons. Nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will destroy you quickly. All right? There's all the clauses. But now I want to understand the relationship of these clauses. And if a clause is dependent on another clause, I'm going to indent it one tier in in order to identify that it's modifying something at a higher level. So we begin with a when unit and a then unit. How far does the when unit go? Until you get down to this clause. So I'm able to grab all of these and just indent them in. Now, notice that 7.1b, where you are entering, is actually modifying the land. So it's not at the same level as all these other clauses. So I'm going to indent it in here. You could bring it all the way over to here if you wanted to. I'll just indent it there in order to show that you've got a unit here. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, and when he clears away, and when the Lord delivers, and when you defeat them, then... Then you shall utterly destroy them. Now, he begins to unpack what does he mean by utterly destroy them. And so that means what follows here, don't do this, don't do this, and don't do this. All of that is unpacking. You shall utterly destroy them. What's the implications of that? Don't make a covenant with them. Don't show them favor. Don't intermarry with them. All of that is unpacking what he means by be sure to destroy them. Implication, don't do this and that. So I'm going to automatically understand, because of the context, that all of these are unpacking what he means by don't destroy. Now let's work that out a little bit. How many things are they supposed to not do? What's the next grouping of thought? And you just follow the conjunctions. What's the next grouping? For they will turn away. Okay, you've got a four down here that signals dependence. Okay, so notice here we've got these two clauses that are outside of the group. You shall not make a covenant with them, and you shall not show them favor. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. And then all of a sudden, he begins to unpack the intermarrying thing. Don't give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons. Now, how how do we understand the... Four. What's the four modifying? What's it unpacking? Because this is true, therefore, what? The, what? So the they here is probably this, these group of, of pagans. So all of a sudden, it suggests... Like that. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will destroy you quickly. So all of a sudden, I look at this and I say, wow. All I did is I first break it down into clauses, and then I begin to think about how do all the parts relate. And I see that there's actually one main idea. 
And this would influence how my understanding of the structure. This is text grammar. What we did on the man after God's heart, that's clause grammar. But this is trying to understand how bigger structures work. And that's why using the New American Standard, even more than the ESV, in Bible Arc, because the New American Standard includes all of the conjunctions in some way. And so I'm able to track the relationships, and where there's no conjunction, then I say, okay, is it just giving me some, a brand new, fresh beginning, or is it explaining? Grammar. You made it through a whole week of grammar lesson. I will be heading to Ethiopia shortly. Thank you for your prayers. I'll be here next week, but I won't be teaching. Brother Chris Tachik is going to teach next week. Come back. Uh, it, I know what he's going to teach on, and I think it will be um, a blessing to you, um, especially in light of today's sermon. And uh, we will push ahead to the next chapter when we see each other again. May the Lord bless you. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.